El Scorchio Tremendo here in Salford. Welcome to Thursday's programme. Are you keeping well? Have you had a good old day? Yes, today begins a week or two of excellent weather, according to the weather folks. I'm Richie Allen, the BBG, with you till 7 o'clock. Contact me via Twitter or drop a message to me through my website. Look forward to hearing from you. It's the BBG, not the BBC. You're listening to the Richie Allen Radio Show, live from Salford in Greater Manchester. It's the Richie Allen Show, broadcasting live on richieallen.co.uk and multiple platforms around the world. And now, here's your host... Richie Allen. Now, shortly after six o'clock, uh, a journalist and a friend of mine, Jackie Devi, returns to the programme, will return to the programme. Nearly a year it's been, she's been investi- investigating euthanasia in UK hospitals. Uh, the biggest story in the world right now, I believe. 28 newspaper editors have turned down the story. There is mounting evidence that doctors are putting do not attempt to resuscitate notices on people who have said no to that, people who are not dying, and giving them midazolam and morphine, which is expediting their death, their demise. Covered this with Jackie over the last few weeks and some of the families affected by that. We'll get an update from Jackie in the second hour and we'll have a general chat, maybe about one or two other things as well. It is Thursday's Richie Allen Radio Show, produced, edited and introduced by the BBG. Yeah, that's me, incidentally. Just in case you didn't know who you were talking to today. Lovely jubbly. Let's go to my website for a moment and we'll have a look at the news, uh, the mainstream news websites as well, just very, very, very briefly. Interesting story. That might be a painful thing if I did that. What's going on there? Interesting story coming out of Spain yesterday. Now, the Telegraph newspaper and the BBC Online only thought that you might want to know that Spain's constitutional court ruled yesterday that the very strict lockdown laws imposed on the Spanish last March were unlawful. Spain, it is argued, imposed the strictest lockdown in Europe, or one of them anyway. So in mid-March last year, Pedro Sanchez's government declared a three-month state of emergency to limit civil liberties temporarily to fight the scamdemic, as we call it, you and me. People couldn't leave the house. Their only excuse was work, go to the supermarket, get medicine, or go to hospital. They couldn't even garden. That's how bad it was in Spain. Now, the Conservative Party, Vox, which is often referred to as a far-right party by the newspapers here anyway, brought a lawsuit challenging the constitutionality of said lockdown and won. Even though it was tight, six judges voted in favour of Vox and five against. They said yes, it was unconstitutional. Because the government needed Parliament to approve the lockdown under something called state of exception. They shouldn't just have declared state of emergency and and then imposed the lockdown. It was illegal and the Constitutional Court agreed with it. And it might mean that Spaniards who were fined for being out in their own back gardens or being out for a walk after seven o'clock 
to, uh, I don't know, to walk off the paella. Those people might be entitled to a reimbursement by the old government there, El Governmento Tremendo in Spain. And only the Telegraph, it did get a mention on bbc.co.uk, but I can tell you reliably that none of the broadcast media in this country thought that you should know that today. Yeah, I did. I thought you'd know it, or you should know it. But here you are anyway. And uh, a step closer was taken, or we've moved a step closer to Ira Papira Bitter. Schnell! Himmel! Achtung! We've moved a bit closer to that because the government finally delivered its advice to businesses on how businesses should behave after uh, July 19th. Right, we expected it, didn't we? That the government would encourage businesses to roll out the COVID passes or the vaccine passports. And uh, they're being encouraged to do so. Consider the use of the NHS COVID pass to reduce the risk of transmission at your venue or event is the government advice. And in Ireland, last night, overnight, the Dáil, the Irish Parliament has passed the government's legislation on the reopening of indoor hospitality. Bars, restaurants and cafes in Ireland can resume indoor service, but only for those who are fully vaccinated against COVID-19 or people who can prove that they recovered from the virus in the last six months. Yes. Yes, and today I saw a guy running with a mask on, which was a first for me. I've seen them out on their bikes, the dipsticks. I've seen them on their bikes. I've seen them in their cars when they've been alone. I've seen builders out in the middle of the street, builders with uh, no one around them doing stuff. You know, these guys who do the telephone lines and, and the internet broadband lines, absolute morons with uh, masks on. But uh, I saw a guy running today with a mask on, you know, running with a mask on your face, eh? You dipstick. Absolutely. But, uh, yeah, you have to be careful now about who you call a dipstick. Size him up. Make sure you're totally convinced that you could beat the granny out of him. Or her, if you're a woman. It must be said it's exactly six minutes past five o'clock. And this is your Richie Allen Show. In case you're just joining me, Jackie Devoy, hour two. Very quick look then at what's making the Nuacht, which is the Gwelga for news, across the mainstream media websites. Uh, NHS COVID app pings 500,000 people in a single week. 500,000 people have gotten, gotten, gotten a message, an alert on their mobile. They've checked it and they've been told to get the feck home and stay home. And many of them do. You dipstick. Absolutely. Delete it off your phones. Delete it. You cretins. Don't be doing what you're told. Absolute mont. What else is uh, going on there? Instagram admits mistakes over racist comments. This is all about the foosballers who were racially abused. Social media is going to crack down on hate speech online. Britney Spears has been allowed to choose her own lawyer. Fantastic. That's made my day. Britney's dad is a conservator for her. She's under a conservatorship. She has been for 12 years as Britney. And she wants to rule. She wants to be responsible for her own life. And she took a step closer today. Everybody is reporting this afternoon that some houses have been raided 
in the inquiry into who leaked the Matt Hancock video. Matt was caught with his hands all over the arse of a woman called Gina Colodangelo. His hands were roaming all over her derriere. And he was uh, El Snoggo Tremendo her. Tremendoing uh, her. And it was filmed, wasn't it? Inside his office. And people want to know who, who filmed it, who leaked it. Partly investigators have seized computers after searches at two homes over the leaking of the CCTV footage. Lovely. Great. Okay. Yeah, you don't care, do you? I, I don't blame you. Let's, uh, do you know what we'll do? Let's move right on. Shall we start with this then? Sugar and salt should be taxed and vegetables prescribed <laughs> by the NHS. Go and pick up your prescription. What are you getting? Well, I'm getting omeprazole for my ulcer. Yes, I, I am. I'm picking up some condoms and I'm picking up some Viagra and a bunch of bananas and three oranges. That's how it's going to be. Now, this is an independent review of the food we eat. And it has suggested tax sugar, tax salt, because, well, we're very unhealthy. And not only is that having a big effect, negative effect on the NHS, but it's also having a negative effect on the environment. Now, the report was led by a businessman called Henry Dimbleby. Nothing to David, nothing to Jonathan. Well, he might be. I'm just making that up. He might be. Henry Dimbleby said the taxes raised could extend free school meal provision and support better diets amongst the poorest people. England's national food strategy also wants GPs to try prescribing fruit and vegetables to encourage healthy eating. Now, the government commissioned this review back in 2019. We talked about it then. And it said that historic reforms of the food system will be needed to protect the NHS, improve our health, and save the planet. Yes, yes, we must protect the NHS. That's an inversion. We're taxed to be Jesus. The absolute be Jesus is taxed out of me and you, national insurance. But 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 then then we, we have to keep protecting the NHS, which is supposed to be there to protect us. Improve the health of the nation. Well, that's social crediting. That's coming down the line. You'll be judged on what you do and what you don't do to keep yourself fit and ultimately save the environment. We'll come to that in a moment. Tax sugar, salt, save the NHS, save the environment. And reduce the farming of animals by 30% in the next 10 years. Talk about more uh, of that, or I'll talk more about that in a moment. Uh, listen to BBC Radio 2's Jeremy Vine introducing this story Today, Tax, sugar and salt to improve the health of the nation, says a major report out today. You heard about it on the news. The national food strategy was produced for the government by the restaurant chain owner Henry Dimbleby. The report says £3.4 billion could be raised in this way for free school meals and better food for poorer families. It also suggests GPs should prescribe fruit and vegetables to reduce obesity. However, the report is worried about the planet as well as about our bodies. The food we eat accounts for about one quarter of greenhouse gas emissions. Meat production is a huge offender. And one recommendation is for the government to spend £75 million on developing proteins that are direct alternatives to conventional meat. Now, we've heard 
recently about burgers made from beans. But now there's talk of mince made from insects. The report also mentions actual meat grown in a lab as so-called cultured tissue, which doesn't need to be sliced off a real animal. So that's a little way away. But is it the future or do you say, no, I'll do anything, but I won't do that? I would do anything for a sandwich, but I won't eat ants. No, I won't eat ants. Do you think that's common? BBG Richie on Twitter. BBG Richie on Twitter. Send a message through the website. Is that common down the line, is it? Eh? Crickets, insects, ants. Will they go for it here in Blighty? Will they? To save the planet? How badly do you want to save the planet? Really badly. Well, I want you to eat this uh, breakfast then of porridge. And of course, it'll be genetically engineered, genetically modified oats, by the way, in your porridge. Have this bowl of porridge and have this uh, crickets on toast. Crickets on toast. There you go. Madness, isn't it? It's madness. The report leader, Henry Dimbleby, spoke to Sky News. Here he is. Well, it's, it's intended to be both a manifesto and a strategic plan. The, the food system of our country is a miracle and a disaster. We saw it in COVID. Food companies worked to get us food, but also it was a huge factor in what was killing people. And we need to create a food system that is good for us and good for the planet. And we recommend, we say that you need to do four things. You need to break the junk food cycle to protect the NHS. We need to break the junk food cycle to protect the sacred NHS. To reduce health inequality. What does that mean, reduce health inequality? We need to use our land better. Use the land better. Get all the farmers and all the cows and all the sheep and all the sheepdogs and all the shepherds off the land and let the land grow wild, right? And we need to change our food culture in the long term. Yeah, there's a Henry Dimbleby there. These people are insane. Useful idiot Dimbleby. He said it's both a manifesto and a strategic plan. Food that's good for us and good for the planet. Break the junk food cycle to protect the NHS. Lovely. Now, the report led by that guy, Dimbleby, says that the food we eat accounts for about a quarter of greenhouse gas emissions. That's what was in the review. The food we eat accounts for a quarter of greenhouse gas emissions, the deadly greenhouse gases, which are not really deadly. The global food system is the single biggest contributor to biodiversity loss, they said. Our food system is causing deforestation, drought, freshwater pollution and the collapse of aquatic wildlife. I'll tell you what's causing drought, will I? It's not me and you having a bit of steak once a month because you can't afford it, Jesus wept. Are you doing your shopping online? Have you seen the price of a bit of fillet steak, Mother of Divine Jesus Christ? Have you? Wow, right? Right, so if you're lucky, you'll have a bit of steak once a month. Do you know what's um, basically causing the droughts? Well, I tell you, Coca-Cola, McDonald's, shall I go on? Pilfering the world's water resources and doing it with the blessings of the governments that they own. Stop with this thing about what we eat is causing greenhouse gas emissions and drought. It's a lie. It's a massive big lie. The report goes on to say, Dimbleby, that our food habits are the second biggest contributor to climate change. Climate change. Protect the NHS. Climate change. Protect the NHS. Climate change will forevermore be linked to the NHS. And the NHS will forevermore only be dealing with COVID and COVID's amazing technicolor Greek alphabet variants. Yes. 
COVID's amazing Technicolor Greek alphabet variants. Yeah. Let's hear from a witch doctor. Let's hear from a witch doctor. Let's hear from a witch doctor for a change. I told the witch doctor I was in love with you. I told the witch doctor I was in love with you. Yes, let's hear from Good Morning Britain's witch doctor, Hillary Killery Shillery Jones. That's his real name, by the way. When he was christened, he took the name of his uncle, Killery. And when he was confirmed, when he was 12, he added his aunt, his aunt Shillery's name, Hillary Killery Shillery Jones. Jones is an absolute idiot, but he's a great, useful idiot for the establishment. Well, again, it's about protecting the NHS too. The NHS spends about £130 billion on looking after people who are suffering from diabetes. Let's take diabetes. Yes, it does. It spends £130 billion looking after people with diabetes, Hillary. Where do they get the money for that? From those who pay for the NHS. What do you expect them to do with the money that we pay to it? The billions that we give to it every year. What do you think they're going to do with it? Isn't that the job of the NHS to treat people? Isn't it? Apparently not. Not billion on looking after people who are suffering from diabetes. Let's take diabetes alone. It's going to cost, in the next 15 years, perhaps... 15 billion to look after people with diabetes in the UK alone. That is one and a half times the treatment of all cancers today. Mm. That is the cost to the nation and, and will be... Yeah, but, but cancers are not being treated today. It's only COVID. COVID is the only game in town. Paying that the taxpayer will be paying for, for the NHS to look after those people. So Yes, the taxpayer will be paying for the NHS to look after people with diabetes and to look after people with obesity. I'm fine with that. That's the way it always was. It's what I always understood to be the case. I'll be taxed unmercifully, as I have been, as, you, as you've been. And I understand that when people are sick or when people are ill, we treat them. We don't judge them because they're obese or because they have diabetes. We just fucking treat them. Right? That's what we do. But I've talked at length about this on the programme, where this is all going. They don't want to treat people anymore. They want to stuff you. They want to stuff you up to the wazoo with vaccines so that you won't get unwell. They've got vaccines in development for everything, including obesity, believe it or not, and including diabetes. Imagine pretty soon children will be encouraged or their parents will be encouraged to consent to children being given a jab to prevent them becoming obese. The child could be anorexic. Or, I shouldn't say that, but the, 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 the child could be incredibly thin. Have a jab. Why? It'll stop you becoming obese in the years to come. Think about the NHS. Don't be a selfish little bastard. Think about the NHS. I, I, this is not, this is this is not conjecture. This is happening. It is urgent to do something now, not just for health, but for climate change as well. Oh Jesus! What would he know about climate change? Oh, what this report also addressed were the were, were the effects on biodiversity damage, on gas emissions from the production of meat, from taking over great tracts of land. Uh, great tracts of land, eh? Monty Python, eat your heart out. And, and producing. Uh, beef, for example, and red meat, which they want to, the, 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 the yeah. report is saying we should cut that down by about 30%, increase fibre, increase fruit and veg. And, and insects and crickets and caterpillars and God knows what else you want people to eat, bags of worms and stuff. 
Madman. Absolute madman. I'd love to present Good Morning Britain just one morning. Just give me one go at it. And I would have a massive frying pan right alongside my chair. So during the Dr. Hillary, Killery, Shillery Jones segment, I would bury my frying pan in the back of his head. It'd be worth the 18 months I would do in, in, uh, in, in, in the clink. In the clink. I'd take 18 months for it, to be honest. No permanent damage now. Just knock him out, you know. Oh, fantasies, fantasies, fantasies. What is it? 20 past, is it 20 past the hour? Yeah, they want to reduce the nation's meat consumption by 30% within 10 years. Clear the farmland, take it back, let it grow wild so that it can soak up the CO2. This is batshit crazy stuff. But you know what? It doesn't matter. Because, well, the more times you say it, the more people believe it. This is Queen on The Richie Allen Show. Queen and you're my best friend. You're listening to the most listened to independent radio show in Europe. It's The Richie Allen Show. Live from Salford, El Scorchio Tremendo. Yeah. Yes, uh, Henry Dimbleby is the son of David Dimbleby, who used to present Question Time. His mother is Jocelyn Dimbleby. There you go. All right, thanks, Jean-Anne. And Jean-Anne tells me there was a great turnout last night, though, in Erinua, as she calls it, the fascist frontier that is Ireland, Erinua, as there were lots of people came out to protest the, well, the, the rubber stamping by the Doyle, by the Parliament, of the vaccine passports. And Jean-Anne says to me, if the gnome in the park, the gnome in the park, the President of Ireland is a little pipsqueak called Michael D. Higgins. Just look him up. He's a comical looking little dude. I know we shouldn't be playing the, the man, we should play the ball, I know that. But I can't resist it. I think there's a wonderful irony when you look like me, a big beanpole of an ignorant baldy gammon. There's a wonderful irony when I cast aspersions on somebody else's countenance, on the appearance of somebody else. I think it's a wonderful irony. I've got absolutely no hang-ups about my appearance being ridiculed, so I feel totally free to laugh at little pipsqueaks like Michael D. Higgins. I crap bigger than Michael D. Higgins, it must be said, as a six foot six baldy gammon here in, in Salford. So Jean answers the gnome in the park because the residence of the Irish president, Uchtaron the Heron, is in the Phoenix Park. So oh, there's nobody better with the uh, with, with with language than Jean Anne. If the gnome in the park had any balls at all, says Jean Anne, he would refer that woeful decision to introduce vaccine passports to the Council of Ireland and really go down in history. Um, Okay, so let's say they know he was once bisexual and that's what they have on him. Um, Yeah, Mickey D. Mickey D. (laughs) Michael D. Higgins, sure ain't gender fluid. A fine thing to be. Yeah, that could be it too. Mickey D. But it's well known that Mickey D, you know, batted for the other team whenever it suited him. You know, Michael D. Higgins, he's, he's hilarious. Just just look at him and listen to him. He's hilarious. 25 minutes past five. You're with the Richie Allen Show. I know I've said that before, but this is the thing in radio. It's brand ID. You've got to keep saying it, you know. Richie Allen. You're listening to Richie, Richie Allen in Salford with, uh, with the BBG's radio show. There you go. Let's move on. Remember yesterday, BBC Radio 5 Live's Rachel Burden had a go at poor Charlie, the student, the young man who wouldn't have the jab. 
Remember him, the irresponsible, selfish, lazy bastard who wouldn't have the jab. Um, he was told he was irresponsible and that he should do it for the grannies and trust the scientists. Remember yesterday, Rachel Burden? If you missed it, the programme can always be listened back to on Podomatic.com, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean and everywhere that does podcasts. Well, Radio 5 Live has been at it all week. Here's Nikki Campbell. Same radio show, BBC Radio 5 Live Breakfast, the phone-in segment. Nicky wants to take Treo to hand. Treo, Treo. He's a young man and he doesn't want the poison either. Nicky asks him, have you had the opportunity to have the job, have you? What a prick Nicky Campbell is. Have you had the opportunity to have a jab, Treo? What was that like? Um, I have not had a jab. Have you had the opportunity to have a jab? Um, yeah, yeah, I've had the, I've had the opportunity. Um, I've opted not to thus far, though. Go on, son. Why not? None of your fucking business, Campbell. Um, because, um, so I have not done the proper amount of research to satisfy myself on how clinical trials work in terms of vaccination. The scientists have, the, though. The, done, the scientists have done the research, haven't they? <laughs> The scientists have done their research. Or the research, the news, as I prefer to call it, yeah? The scientists who... He won't be deterred, though. Young Treo, I like this. Which are reported in the news, that's that's fine. I prefer to do things my my own. Uh, I, in You're going to carry out your own peer-reviewed research, eh? Mm. What a price prick, eh? You're going to carry out your own research, are you, Teo? Said Campbell. Hey, this is the standard. You might have a go at me for using bad language, right? This is the standard on the BBC, right? This is shocking. Uh, You're going to carry out your own peer-reviewed research, eh? Sarcastic arsehole. Instead of giving him room to explain what he means by research. Because Treo would have said, well, they've rushed it out. It's still in trials. They have no long-term data. But maybe Treo does say that. Not exactly. Um, I'm going to take perhaps the next 12 months or perhaps the next 24 months from when the vaccines were first rolled out. It's Great stuff. It's kind of um, a period of long-term data to collection to see the efficacy. <laughs> What's Campbell laughing at there? Long-term data collection, and Campbell thinks it's funny. To see the efficacy <laughs> of the vaccination, the long-term side effects and so on. <laughs> That's data that we don't have. Okay. Anyone want to react to that? Because you can't. Because you've got nothing to say. I'd like 12 months or more to look at the efficacy of the thing, right? And long-term data on whether it's safe or not. He's right. Why should he play Russian roulette? Campbell can say nothing, so he invites the other callers who happen to be on the line. It goes on for a little bit. Then Campbell, the presenter, says... The vaccination programme is going to allow you to go... The vaccination programme, Teo, is going to allow you to go about your life in a, far, in a far freer way than you have done for many, many months. The vaccination programme is going to allow you to go to... Are you looking forward to going to a nightclub? Yeah, Campbell is just admitting that it's coercion. Campbell is admitting live on air that this is coercion. Have the vaccine, son, because it will allow you to enjoy some of the freedoms that you've been missing since the country was turned upside down. This is farcical. Can't tell you. You've not presented uh, radio, commercially or nationally. I have. So you don't know. You've not produced radio, commercially, nationally. You've not made television programmes. I have. This is farcical. 
This would never have been tolerated before. It's astonishing stuff, this. A presenter is telling a kid, um, have it because you'll be able to enjoy a much freer life. Wow. Nightclubs? No, I don't enjoy nightclubs. Uh, okay. I find them too closely crowded. Personally, okay. I don't Are you looking forward like to going to a gig? Crowded environment. I am. I am looking forward to <laughs> going to gigs, but I, I don't like being in crowded environments. Actually, I quite like the social distancing regulations because, you know, they they do help us to some extent. Now, obviously, the limited capacity of places is a problem, and, of course, that comes down to my own choice. I choose not to be in crowded places. What if you got it and you spread it to an older person and they became very seriously ill? <laughs> How would you feel about that? Because yeah. you are not double-jabbed, not yeah. single-jabbed. You're the tone of voice um, Campbell is using. We won't, we won't get his answer. He gives a good answer. You're the tone of voice there... You know, the, the foreboding tone, you know, the disapproving tone. Teo actually goes on to say it's unlikely that he'll pass on anything to anybody because he keeps himself fit and he eats well. He won't be getting sick and therefore unlikely to pass anything on. Campbell sarcastically asks him if he's into ginseng. That's the standard now. But you might get a giggle out of this. Nikki Campbell has been crying this week. This arsehole who likes to embarrass people who are not accustomed to being on national radio, who likes to embarrass them. This wanker Campbell. I'm using the word wanker now because it's, it's, it's very important in the story I'm going to tell you. Nikki Campbell has been crying this week on a podcast about being bullied by Charlie Brooker, the man behind Black Mirror. Campbell has actually said that he once spent two days in bed and wouldn't come out after he was called the Antichrist by Charlie Brooker. Charlie Brooker is a satirist, right? Famous for Black Mirror, but he's also an author and he used to write newspaper columns. And Brooker criticised Campbell several times about 10 or 11 years ago, right? criticised Campbell for basically being Alan Partridge, which Campbell kind of is. I know Richard Madeley takes the, the blue ribbon there, but Campbell is just another useful idiot on the BBC. He's got no personality. He's not nice. He's not a journalist. He's not interested in people. He's not interested in the truth. He's only interested in himself. So about 11 years ago, Brooker went after Campbell big time because of his behaviour on air. And he called him the biggest arsehole in the world, the smuggest prick, the smarmiest tit, and the shittiest burk, and the somberest wankstain. <laughs> this is what he said about Campbell back in 2009. I love it, because I'm a big child. I really am immature, as you well know. So, Campbell went on a podcast called My Time Capsule, and he described Brooker's remarks as vicious and visceral, and that they exacerbated his depression and that he stayed in bed for two days. And he, he actually said, one time I was getting abused by, by Brooker. I went home and I watched it and I thought, this is Campbell's own words, and I thought, he's got me and I don't really know who I am and he sussed it out. Yes, he sussed you out. You are a fake you are a perfect, quintessential BBC creation. Somebody devoid of empathy. Somebody devoid of pity. Somebody devoid of moral values. Who refuses to do your job. 
and do your bit to liberate the country from fucking tyranny. That's your job, you wankstain. Charlie Brooker was right. That is your only job. Your job is to go on the air every morning of the week. And when that Robert Buckland or Sajid Javid or Matt Hancock or whoever comes on your programme, your job is to poke holes in their story and to destroy them if they are lying to and putting the lives of the public in danger. That is your job. But when you are devoid of empathy, when you're devoid of pity, of decency, of human values, you're nothing but an empty shell. You are a nothing. And Charlie Brooker saw through you, Campbell, who won't be on BBC Radio 5 Breakfast for much longer. He's leaving the programme to do a mid-morning phone-in on the same station. God, do I despise him. I wouldn't see a hair on his head harmed. I would not. But I despise him. He is the antithesis. He is the antichrist when it comes to journalism. Everything that's wrong about broadcasting and journalism, right there, Nicky Campbell. A young man is on the air. God love him. He's nervous. And he's saying, Jesus, I'll give it 12 months or two years. You know, we'll have a look at it, really. I don't know what's going on. They rolled it out quick. I'll do my own research. What do you get? Sarcasm. Don't kill your granny. You know? Would I dare to call myself a journalist? Would I? Would I put that on my Twitter info information thing? on my settings, on my profile? Would I, would I call myself a journalist if I was shilling? If I was shilling for the spondulics? That's what they do. They shill for the spondulics. I said it yesterday. Rachel Burden will go home and somebody will have an extra... This is metaphorical, they won't. But that's what it's about. You'll get home, there'll be another story on your house. Fuck your neighbours. Fuck the people you live around. That their lives are being destroyed. You absolute cretin. And then you're stupid enough to think that when everybody else is gone and when they've taken everybody else's money and moved everybody else into super cities and human settlement zones, you think Nicky Campbell and James O'Brien on LBC and all the rest of them, you think you'll be okay. That you'll get your reward. No, you won't. No, you won't. And I bet you there are nights when you can't sleep, two, three o'clock in the morning, when you wonder, when you wonder about that. Will I be all right? when they've killed God knows how many people with their poison jabs, will I be okay? Will I be looked after for doing my bit? You wonder, eh? It's uh, 24 minutes to the top of the hour. This is the Richie Allen Radio Show, live from Salford, here in the northwest of the UK. I'm going to take another tune very briefly, and uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about... Let me have a look here. What are we going to talk about? Um, We're going to briefly talk about masks very briefly talk about masks and then we're going to move on. Jackie Devoy, terrific journalist, joins the programme in the second hour. She's someone you don't want to miss. The Midazolam morphine scandal in the second hour of the programme. Richie Allen Radio Show with the BBG Live from Salford. <sighs> What's the sense in sharing this one? Hearts run free, 20 minutes to 6 o'clock. The Richie Allen Show from Richie Allen Show Towers somewhere in Salford. Right, let's uh, get rid of that and let's um, do something else. Let's talk about masks momentarily. Masks, masks, masks. Gail sent me this on Twitter. I didn't have a chance to say thank you for linking me to it. It's a comedian. It's one comedian playing two guys having a conversation about masks and it's quite comical, but also quite, um, well, very shrewd. Hey, have you noticed that influenza has all but disappeared? Well, what do you expect? We've been wearing a mask for the last year and a half. 
So why is COVID still spreading? Look, because COVID's different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's transmitted in exactly the same way. It's airborne. It's more contagious. I get that. So are you saying that masks only work for flu, but not COVID? No, masks work for COVID too. So why is COVID still spreading then? Because a lot of people don't wear masks. So why has flu stopped spreading then? Because you're a conspiracy theorist and don't understand science. So there, came from Twitter. Now, Rene Hund, I pronounced this, Rene Hunderkamp, Dutch woman working here, Rene Hunderkamp is a GP and a medical writer, so she's a GP. She was on talk radio last night with Christo Hasta, any Christo, a guy called Christo Fufas. Uh, Rene annihilated the mask nonsense. Right, so two things. Firstly, if masks were working so well, we wouldn't have rising cases now because everybody has been wearing them. Well, but so secondly, the vaccine is supposed to work. That's, that's sorry. You know. okay, OK, let her finish. So, secondly, secondly... There... I thought the first point was very good. If masks were any good, cases wouldn't be rising now because everybody is wearing them. She's right. So why are cases rising? Ma and Colleen, she goes on. There's very good evidence, and Laura Dodsworth has actually spoken to people from Sage and Spy B who actually have said very clearly, anonymously, that masks were introduced to actually convince people that everything was very dangerous and to signal fear, because fear is the way that they get people to comply with rules. When we have fear running around in our bodies, we have cortisol, which is damaging to health. And I am seeing children, and I'm a parent of a three-year-old, nearly three, next month, and I know what's going on with these children because they come to me as their GP to express their fear and I understand what Lauren says about she might be able to work with people to help them through but I don't know if you know what the wait lists are to get somebody to see a mental health counsellor in the NHS Lauren it is months but, but, Renee, and months. But, but Renee I think you know a lot of people would agree with what you're saying in, in as much as the, 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 the fear that is being driven by people wearing masks but where I think that, that, that it might be a a, a bigger stretch to get to is this idea that it's all part of a, a plan to make us scared because if that were the case why have surgeons been covering their faces mm-hmm. for years why are there many many medical situations where oh. when, when appropriately worn masks yes. have been used in order to stop people yes. being able to pass germs on so so surely there is some data behind it that is beyond people just wanting to scare okay. others Christo, good man. And the, the, the response is? When I started this conversation, Christo, I said in a clinical setting. We know in a clinical setting. So my partner is a surgeon. So I know very well how these are worn. And they don't touch them once they are on their face, ever. It goes on their face and their mask never gets touched again until it comes off. Okay, so that's number one. And number two, there is evidence from sage minutes that they tried to ramp up the fear to make people comply. And in interviews with them, they have said that that's what masks are about. They're a signal, they're a collective signal to everybody that this is very dangerous. And obviously I'm really sorry, Lauren, about your uncle and your dad, of course I am, that's tragic. And I wouldn't want that to happen to anyone. And if I truly believed that masks would have prevented that from happening, I would have supported them. Mm. Pretty straightforward, that. Pretty straightforward, that. Let's go to the uh, emails. 
Hi to Stephen Mayfield. How you doing, Stephen? Uh, not too impressed with Nicky Campbell either, it's fair to say there. Um, John came on to say that shares in frying pans just went up. <laughs> I'm joking, by the way. I wouldn't hit anybody over the head with anything, let alone a frying pan. All right. Lovely. Let's uh, move right on. Uh, what else have I had on the old email there? I've had an email from John who said he uh, absolutely cringes when he hears the likes of Campbell and Richard Madeley and James O'Brien as well, so he just doesn't listen to them anymore. Fair enough, John. I understand that. Right, let's... Um, speaking of Richard Madeley and, and masks and stuff, over on Good Morning Britain, Madeley was interviewing the Housing Secretary, Robert Buckland, and challenging him on this whole business of personal responsibility. Because the government are, are not leaving it to people to do what they feel is right. They have claimed that they're after June 19th, which is next Monday. The government has claimed that after that, it's up to people's personal choice, but that they would encourage people to consider wearing masks and, and whatnot in certain situations. That's what the government has said, but the government is lying because the government is encouraging the private sector to police it and to do the government's dirty work for them. Here's Richard Madeley, as I said, with uh, Robert Buckland, the Housing Secretary, on that very subject. You'll hear the Housing Secretary first. We're able to move into a new phase, and that's one where we all exercise our own personal judgment. And organisations and transport operators like TfL or the tram here in Wolverhampton, where I am this morning, will come up with their own judgment as to what's appropriate for their setting. Yeah, but that's and not I, personal I judgment. And will reach sensible will reach sensible judgments yeah, on that. If on, you're on a, a closely packed tube train no, 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 no. or tram from Wolverhampton going into Birmingham, then it makes perfect sense to continue wearing a mask. If you're on a uh, an empty train, then I think many people will come to a different yeah, judgment sorry, and say, sorry, "Well, sorry. there's nobody around me. Sorry, therefore, sorry, I don't Minister, need to." I must pull you up on this. It's not a personal judgment. If I get on the tube train in London, it's not my personal judgment whether or not to wear a mask. I've got to wear a mask because I'm being told to by the authorities on the tube, on the bus, in taxis. Um, if I'm in, 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 in Manchester, I'm going to have to wear a mask on the trams there by decree. It's not my personal choice. So. I'm sorry, we don't have personal choice in these areas. If I, if I want to shop in Waterstones or Sainsbury's, you could say it's my personal choice to cross the threshold. But if I do, I don't have a choice about a mask. They're going to make me wear one. So it's not personal choice anymore. It's, I mean, the, 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 the freedoms which well, well, you, you, claim, you claim the, your government in, in, has given in, us not to wear masks are being completely eroded by corporations and by mayors. Yes, that's right. So the government says you have freedom of choice, but that freedom has been eroded by regional mayors like Sadiq Khan, right, in, in London, who has said, well, no, you've still got to wear masks on public transport or you'll be turfed off. Right. What did Jenrick say? No, I don't think that's, that, that's, that's fair, actually. You will be able... Yeah, I've just realised I'm an idiot. It's Robert Jenrick, isn't it? Not, it's not Buckland. Buckland is the Justice Secretary. Robert Jenrick, we're listening to Mea Culpa, Mea Culpa. It's Thursday and it's warm, but I've got to reiterate, it is a government minister... It's a Tory minister anyway, but it's generic, okay. So Madeley put it to him, look, it's nonsense. You're saying people can use their own discretion, but um, regional mayors are saying, no, you can't. So 
Where is the personal choice? No, I don't think that's that that's that's fair. Actually, it is fair. You will be able to exercise your personal judgment. But how? But how can you? You you might go down to London and you might think, um, right, I'll get off the train, I'll, I'll go on the underground, and I'll head for Wembley, or I'll head for. I don't know where, right? And I'm not going to wear a mask because I think I'm perfectly safe and I'm no threat to anybody else. You can't do that because they've said they'll turf you off the train. So there you go. But also businesses and those people who are operating public transport. Now I'll spare you the rest of this. He goes on to say that we're giving people personal choice, but we're also giving businesses personal choice. We're lovely. We're giving you all personal choice. And what the government is doing here is, of course, the government isn't deciding any of this. Uh, the UK government is not in charge. It's currently being controlled. It, it's operating under the thumb of the Scientific Advisory Group for Emergencies. That is SAGE. That is Chris Whitty and Patrick Valance. They're currently telling the government what to do. Now, SAGE isn't running things either. SAGE has its own bosses, right? And it's a pyramid goes all the way to the top. What the government is basically saying is, right, look, we're not really running any of this, but we can't tell you that. We're going to absolve ourselves of any responsibility so that when you wise up to what's really going on and you reach for the pitchforks and the torches, well, you might not come for us in the end. That's what's going on. Right? They're ushering in this totalitarian regime, forcing masks on people, forcing multiple jabs on people, forcing people to close their businesses and stay at home whenever they're told. Vaccine passports, they're doing all that and they're doing it the sneaky way. They're, they're getting the private sector to do it. That's what's going on. 10 minutes to 6 o'clock. Triple threat coming this winter, apparently. Are you aware? There is a triple threat. Here's the absolutely feckin' useless Sky presenter Neil Patterson Triple threat. Welcome back. Every winter, the NHS battles to stem the annual tide of respiratory viruses, but this year may prove its most challenging yet. 29 leading experts brought together by the Academy of Medical Sciences have forecast that a lethal triple threat of COVID, flu and other respiratory viruses could take an already highly pressured NHS to breaking point. Yeah, yeah, triple threat. And right across the media today, experts were coming out of the shadows to remind us that we are screwed this year because we had no flu last year or any other respiratory viruses either. But they'll come out of retirement this year to overwhelm the NHS. Here's Azra Ghani. She is the Chair of Infectious Disease Epidemiology at Imperial College in London. Every year, normally, we would see a number of respiratory viruses. Flu, of course, gets the most attention, but there are others as well. Um, and the scale of this w this year could be much higher simply because over the last 15 to 18 months, we've had these restrictions in place for COVID and these pretty much wiped out um, other respiratory viruses. So as we emerge um, and start to move back to normal, it's likely that these could um, uh, come back and come back at a much higher level than we've previously had simply because we've lost some of the immunity that would normally be built up. Yeah. They're coming back this year. They took a year off, but they're coming back. Meanwhile, at the very same time, over on BBC Breakfast, shilling for the Spondulics was Dr. William Bird. That's his name, Dr. William Bird. Billy Bird. Billy Bird was echoing Azra on the BBC. Well, we've been, um, last winter, we had virtually no flu. 
and we had no <laughs> RSV. RSV is respiratory syncytial virus. For young children, that's bronchiolitis. And any parent who's had a child who's had bronchiolitis will know how worrying that is. It's when the child really feels like they've got a sort of bubbly chest and they're struggling to breathe, um, and then it gets better. It can just be a cold, which happens in adults. And then in elderly people, you get bronchitis. So it's a nasty virus. It tends to come at the beginning of winter and then kind of peaks just before Christmas. Um, but whereas flu tends to peak about just after Christmas, and of course, COVID can peak any time. So it looks like what's happened is um, this coming up winter, we've got this big peak coming up in August. That's going to fade away, but we don't know how quickly that will fade. Probably then the NHS will have really struggled with that one. Then we're going to get the problems of RSV. And the problems are because there's no immunity to the RSV because nobody had it last year. It was very, very low. And then we've got an unpredictable flu. So we think it's going to be about twice as high for RSV and twice as high for flu than a normal year. Not last year, but for a normal year. Twice as high. And then we've got an unpredictable flu. So we think it's going to be about twice as high for RSV and twice as high for flu than a normal year. Not last. Do you know what? James Van Prague and John Edwards, the legendary psychics, they must be dying of envy that this guy can tell you so accurately what's going to happen in the coming months. Could it be because people are going to become very ill because they've been jabbed? Could it be? I can't say that for a certainty. I don't know. But I've had certifiable experts on this programme tell me as much. Is that what's going to happen? Are those who are jabbed going to succumb to, you know, things that they would ordinarily have gotten over. Because we all get, well, we all, some of us get a bit ill during the winter. Some of us do. And you're sick for a few days, you might have the flu, you might have a virus, whatever, you might have a chest infection, you get over it, and you get on with it. But how bad is it going to be this winter? They keep telling us. It's going to be really, really, really bad. Is that because they know the jabs are going to do damage to people on a scale that will make it impossible to hide from people? What do you think? BBG Richie, that's my Twitter handle. I'd like to hear from you this afternoon. Hi to John, is it John? John B, who sent me a quote from Frank Zappa, which says, politics is the entertainment branch of industry. Cheers, John. Hope you're well. Thanks for listening to the programme. Stay in touch. Stay in touch with me through Twitter or through the website, richieallen.co.uk. Let me scroll on down. Let me scroll on down. Gary says, sounds like this guy, Billy Bird, is setting the groundwork for many deaths this year. What could be causing that, I wonder. Well, that's their their shtick. And they are sticking to it. They are saying, we had no flu, no RSV last year. We had none, none. It disappeared now. Why? Well, because the masks. Like, you heard the sketch, the Aussie guy. We've known this for, for months and months and months. It's preposterous. It is utterly ludicrous. It's ridiculous. It's insulting. So the masks got rid of flu and chest infections, yes. And RSVs, yes, yes. Yeah, why did COVID keep spreading then? No answer to that. But now flu is coming back and, and other respiratory things. And added to COVID, that means that, well, it's going to be terrible this coming winter. So you have to wonder if they know what's coming. And by if they know, I'm not being naive. What I mean is, if they know down to a T, if they know down to the finest detail, what's going to happen this coming winter? Oh, yeah. Wow. 
BBG Richie on Twitter. Time for another tune. Don't forget, in about 10 minutes' time, Jackie Devite will be live on the programme. From London, we're going to be talking Midazolam, which is one of the biggest scandals, of course, in the world. 28 newspaper editors in this country handed evidence that hospitals are euthanizing people. People who are not dying, not that I am suggesting for a moment, is that it is acceptable to euthanize someone who is, I'm not suggesting that at all. I'm saying people who could walk out of hospital are being drugged up on midazolam and morphine to expedite their departure. Lots of evidence. UK media doesn't want to touch it. We'll talk with Jackie. We'll get an update on that a little bit. Not later, in about 10 minutes' time. Here's Rod Stewart in the meantime while I have a glass of water and take a breather. at Manchester Arena a couple of years ago watching Rod Stewart. You wonder if you ever see that again. Will we ever have such nights again? It's not looking like it. It's coming up for a minute past six. Jackie Devi is standing by. Get, get Jackie on the line in a couple of minutes' time. Not looking like it, is it? I see one or two of you tweeting about forest raves and stuff. I suppose it, it really remains to be seen just how many people refuse the jab. This came up on the phone-in programme last night. I really enjoyed that last night, by the way. It's grim stuff. It is grim stuff. You know, you're speaking to people whose livelihoods are at stake. People who conscientiously, quite rightly, are refusing to be coerced into having an experimental medical treatment that they know is not really designed to do any good at all, really. They know this, right? And you wonder, the government is claiming that 66% of adults in the country have had both jabs. And somebody brought this up last night, and it's something I've been thinking about. And that is, can you believe the government? Are they lying? Is the the 66% an exaggeration designed to make others think that they don't want to be left behind? It's possible. It is possible. It's possible that maybe half the people claimed by the government to have had the jabs, in fact, have had the jabs. So maybe one third, maybe. Maybe one third. This is pure speculation. I don't know. The government may be, for once, telling the truth, maybe. Maybe people have. I can only speak for the jabbing centre near where I live. It's been rammoed. I haven't seen the one at the top of Langworthy Road by the church, but I believe that's been rammed as well. Rammed, like rammed, constantly. People queuing up to go and have it. So I really don't know the answer. I think you could make a good case for both. They're lying. You could make the case they're lying to encourage others to think, well, I don't want to be left behind. I need to get jobbed so that, so that I can take a holiday, so that I can go and see my... My, my, my father or my mother in the care home. But seemingly, a lot of younger folks are not taking it. We know from the callers who called in last night is that a lot of people who work in healthcare are not taking it. And that's positive. It is for me anyway. So, what will it be like in terms of the unjabbed? 
Will there be meetings? Will it be possible to do that? What steps will this totalitarian regime take to prevent people from meeting up? You know, I think we're we're not in the darkest stage of winter yet. And by winter, I don't mean the season winter. I mean winter as in this paradigm. I don't think the night is as dark as it's going to get. For the moment, it's if you don't have the job, you're not socialising. And you might lose your job. Now, that's bad enough, losing your job. But I have a feeling that as time goes on, maybe not 2021, maybe not even 2022, but at some stage, they're going to say, you're going to have it whether you like it or not. That's where I see it going. Not this year, not next year, maybe not next year, maybe not 2023, maybe 2024. But that's ultimately what they want to do. Ties in with this agenda to, to, to no longer treat people as we used to treat people. I'm not saying that the way we've treated people is necessarily, is necessarily good. You know, we've tended to treat people's symptoms in hospitals and often overlook the underlying cause. I'm well aware of that. But generally, you know, you've gone into hospital or you've, you've gone to a doctor and they'll look after you and they'll send you on your way as best as they can. But they want to scrap that and increasingly they will want you and me to ingest things to prevent us becoming ill in order that we do not become a burden on society and the health service and the environment. And it's at that stage, when that agenda is ramped up a little bit, it's at that stage, I think, that they might say, well, you might say that you don't want it, but you're going to have it, whether you like it or not. That's what I think. BBG Richie on Twitter. You can contact the programme via the website richieallen.co.uk. We'll get Jackie on the line now and we'll, we're will we going to get an update on what I think is the biggest story. I mean, you're talking about the scamdemic. I'm well aware of that. But this story is absolutely massive. And uh, Jackie Devoy has been on this story for the best part of the last 12 months. The best part of the last 12 months. Euthanasia in UK hospitals. Is it going on? Was the supposedly abandoned Liverpool Care Pathway System programme, has that really continued but under a different name? It's looking like it. Like I said, this is the biggest story in the world. Evidence is emerging. The doctors are putting do not attempt to resuscitate notices on people who have declined them. People who have said, no, please do. If anything happens to me. By the way, I'm only here because I've got a bit of pneumonia or because I've had... You know, I've come in for an operation. Jesus, you know, please do look after me if anything happens. Evidence, that's being ignored. And DNRs are being put on people anyway. People who are not dying. And that those people then are being giving, are being given, I should say, drugs like midazolam and morphine. Midazolam is basically a, a, a relaxant. But it's a very serious relaxant drug that can suppress your breathing make it very difficult for you to breathe. Morphine. Covered this with Jackie in the last few weeks and some of the families. She's been covering it for the best part of the last year. It's the biggest story in the world. If you're in the UK, nobody wants to touch it. Let's welcome back to the programme my friend Jackie Devoy, whose uh, byline has appeared on every newspaper in the country. Welcome back, our kid, as they say in this mm -hmm. part of the world. How are you? 
I'm very well, thank you, Richard. Thanks for having me. No, it's always good to have you on. Um, do you want to, shall we play that bit of audio? It's just the Hancock audio. Do you want to introduce that? So I'll yeah, yeah. I'll play it. Well, you introduce it and then I'll play it. Okay, well, it's a House of Commons uh, meeting. Sorry, I've got a bit of a, an echo here, so it's throwing me a bit. Um, yeah, I've got the, um, the actual transcript of this meeting um, and it's um, a bit of conversation uh, between... Uh, Dr. Luke Evans, MP, and Matt Hancock. And they are quite clearly discussing euthanasia. So maybe if people could have a listen and see if um, if they agree with that. I mean, some people say that's not what they're discussing, but I can, I can talk about that afterwards if you want to play it. With that, I mean, a, a good death needs three things. It needs equipment, it needs medication, and it needs um, the staff to administer it. So in terms of equipment, a few quick questions. Just stop it again. With that, I mean, a, a good death needs three things. It needs equipment, it needs medication, and it needs um, the staff to administer it. So in terms of equipment, uh, a few quick questions. Do you have enough syringe drivers in the NHS to deliver medications to keep people comfortable when they're passing away? Uh, yes, we do. Uh, there was a challenge raised about this um, about eight days ago, and we re resolved that actually it wasn't so as big a challenge as as was made public and we've we've resolved that so yes um right now we do and the second one is with that that's to, the syringe drive is to deliver medication particularly things like midazolam and morphine um do you have any precautions put in place to make sure we have enough of those medications to be delivered yes and we've got a big project to make sure that um th those sorts of medications as well as uh, the itu medications that i spoke about earlier that the supply chains, the global supply chains for those medicines are, are clear. Um, they are, in fact, those, those medicines are made in a relatively small number of factories around the world. So it is a delicate supply chain and we are uh, in uh, contact with the whole supply chain. And in line with that, morphine is currently prescribed per patient. The reason to do that is to stop it being abused. So I have to prescribe it for Mr. Hancock. However, in this situation, if you're going into a healthcare home, um, you may not want to waste precious things like morphine. Have you considered relaxing the laws around morphine prescribing for doctors and healthcare professionals so that there isn't waste? That's something that we keep under review. I've looked at that particular point to reduce wastage of key medicines, and it's something that the supply chain, uh, the supply team, sorry, in um, uh, in the department and uh, the clinical team. Uh, talk about all the time. I don't know if that's JVT's part of the clinical team and he may want to say more. Yeah, JVT, Jonathan Van Tam. Listen to the first 15 seconds again before Jackie comes back. With that, I mean, a, a good death needs three things. It needs equipment, it needs medication and it needs um, the staff to administer it. So in terms of equipment... Right, Jackie. He said Luke Evans. I've written it down. He said a good death needs equipment, medication and the staff to administer it. Listen, I've been around the block a thousand times. They are discussing euthanasia, right? Yeah, well, a good death is a well-known uh, medical terminology for euthanasia. Um, people might argue that uh, he's just saying a good death, you know, an easy death, one that is not too unpleasant. Um, but uh, no, because if, if that's what he's talking about, that kind of death, a quiet, calm passing, doesn't need anything. So he kind of slips up there with the word need because 
if you just die in your sleep, you don't need any of those things. You don't need anything. You don't need equipment, medication, and staff for a, a, a peaceful passing. But if you're um, being euthanized, euthanized, then you actually will need some equipment and staff and medication. So it's clearly what he's talking about. Um, it's clearly scripted. I've, I've had this um, this uh, transcript, and there's a video of them talking. Um, and I've watched it many times, and it's clearly scripted. They're not just having a casual chat. So there is video footage of them having a casual chat about going down the pub for a drink. So you can kind of see the difference. Yeah. Uh, and so it is quite clear they're talking about um, about euthanasia, but you know, there's other things that tie in with that that, that back it up, such as the fact that around the same time, Matt Hancock ordered um, all the midazolam available from a factory in France, and there's paperwork, just you know, there's the, the, the actual written order uh, that I've seen, and it, there was an article on it at the time as well. So um, there's there's a lot of things to back up the fact that they're they are talking about about euthanasia. No doubt, uh, Jackie. He he clearly said to Evans that they were procuring it. He said it's only a, a small number of factories producing it and we've done what we need to get it. Just before I get out of your way again, the, the thing that strikes me is they would have known that even if you're a senior citizen and even if you're a bit unwell, they would have known the data that you're still incredibly unlikely to die from infection with COVID-19. Yeah. That being the case, why then would you want to be talking about good deaths for people? That's an, you know, it makes no sense to me knowing that people are, are most people are unlikely to die. Even the elderly are unlikely to die from it. That's very suspicious that they will be talking about good deaths. Yeah, and even where he says, you know, to keep people comfortable while they're passing away, um, to keep making people comfortable, keeping people comfortable. That, that's quite a common euphemism um, in hospitals, you know, make them comfortable. It means uh, drug them up to the eyeballs, basically. Yeah. Um, when you put a patient on a syringe driver full of midazolam and morphine, there is only one outcome. We, we, we've discussed this before. Yeah. Well, when it's continuously being pumped into your body, there's only one outcome, and that's death. So unless it's stopped, the person will die. They will be put to sleep. You know, it's, like, you know, it's like putting an animal down, basically. Um, I'm very interested in this Dr. Luke Evans. He's a GP. He's 38. He's like the all singing, all dancing poster boy doctor for the Tories. Um, when I say all singing, he actually did sing in a barbershop chorus as well. So he's actually, <laughs> he's almost too good to be yeah, true. He's yeah. the, the kind of model good looks. Um, and he pops up whenever, whenever the government wants to get a scripted answer to the public, they say, oh, let's seek the advice of the independent GP, Dr. Luke Evans. He's not independent at all. Um, and then he says to the government, you know, what they've told him to say. And that goes out to the public with the public thinking he's um, talking independently and he's clearly not. So, um, yeah, he's, he's a bit suspect. He's also clearly good friends with Matt Hancock. Like I said, you know, they, they've been... Um, there's footage of them, them talking about going for a drink together. Uh, it's all just really, I don't know, there's something really sinister about it. 
So yeah, that, that's that's what I think of him. I'd like to find out more about him actually. There's, I've been onto his website. It's difficult. He, yeah, his website is drdrlukeevans.org. It's difficult. He's um he's a member of the Health and Social Care Select Committee, but other than that, it's difficult to find out much more about him. You 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 described him brilliantly. He he's he's a poster child, really. Yeah. You know, young doctor. Um, comes across as very amiable, very affable, but he's been basically exposed by you and others discussing giving people who you would not expect to be in danger a good death. This was a respiratory infection. At the same time they were having that conversation, England's chief medical officer, Chris Whitty, was telling anybody who would listen that the great, great, great majority of people will not die from this illness. In fact, he said, you know what he said, he, he basically watered it down until it was almost invisible. Most people won't get it. Most people won't get it. Of those who get it, most won't get seriously ill. They knew this, and yet they're discussing good deaths. Yeah, and um, yeah, that's absolutely true. I mean, I've done lots of uh, radio and interviews about radio interviews and, and TV, internet TV stuff now. And I'm not an expert, you know, I'm not a doctor. I'm not, um, I'm not a, a lawyer, I'm just the journalist. I just collect the information. I'm the collector and collator of the information. I just report on what I'm given. But we know from uh, talking to the families of the victims a few weeks back that these people, the, these elderly people, they weren't particularly ill. They were in hospital for one reason or another. Um, and I've spoken to a lot more people since uh, that in, in a few weeks as well. You know, people going in for a, a hip operation and two days later they're dead, you know, and they had yeah. nothing wrong with them, um, no illness. Or someone going in with a urine infection or maybe a chest infection. And, um, yeah, two or three days later, they're, they're not breathing anymore. So, um, yeah, it, it, a, lot, a lot of other people, like I said, have been have been doing a lot of research into this. Um Probably, probably more than I have. I, I can talk as a, a journalist um, trying to get this massive story into the papers. I'm a freelance journalist. Um, so I've been doing that for 36 years. So to, my, my job, I feel, is to get these important stories out to everyone, you know, the people who actually uh, read the papers, because they're, they're, they're the people that believe the lies more than anyone else yeah. and that are being brainwashed by the TV's and, and the newspapers. Um, so, but that's, I've been trying to do that for many months now, as you know, and there's just, there's just, well, none of them want to run it. I've had a, a re very recent flicker of interest um, from a newspaper, and it was one that I'd missed actually, not um, one of the original 28. I just thought, oh, maybe I'll try them because I, I didn't actually send it out to them originally. And I do have a flicker of interest there, but I'll be I'll be very very surprised if they actually run it. You you said you're you know you're just a journalist, but you've been doing your job a long time. You've got a nose for when something is very very badly wrong. This is yeah. badly wrong here because you introduced uh, us on this program to um, to a number of families, yeah. and. Uh, and then, but before that and after that, you've been inundated with people who suspect that it's happened to, to, to their family member. I'm, I'm right in saying that, right? It's been relentless, the contacts you've had. But a lot of these people, like I said, they're, they're family members who are in hospital. 
they, they weren't all, all very ill. You know, they yeah. didn't have conditions. They weren't necessarily dying of cancer or anything like that. Um, but and, and and there were instances where where these poor people were given this uh, killer cocktail of drugs when they were unconscious. So midazolam is usually used with, with morphine to uh, calm an agi- agitated patient down. If someone's, say, being put on a ventilator, it's pretty horrible, so they'd, they'd give them a, a shot of that just to keep them calm and stop them wriggling around. Um, but these these people that were being given it, they, 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 didn't, they, they weren't agitated. No. And many were so unagitated, they, were actually, they actually weren't conscious. So um, that doesn't make any sense at all. And, and highly suspicious. I mean, all the stories I've heard are, are just really, really suspect, you know. And while you've been doing it over the, the last nine or ten months or, or, or longer, while you've been doing it, things have begun, clues, I suppose, I hate to say clues, but yeah, clues have, um, have turned up. We hear from people like John O'Lunig, John the, the Undertaker, in Milton yeah. Keynes, who is, um, you know, is very well respected by his peers in that business, doing it a long time. And he says, look, here, here's a fact, he says, the death figures are being inflated. I had people get in touch with me to encourage me to help with the process of, you know, you know, saying that people had died of coronavirus. Um, the death numbers for 2020 were no worse than previous years. And that there was a spike in deaths in February when they started rolling out the jabs uh, to the elderly and to the so-called most vulnerable. They started seeing a spike. You know, if you were a detective, Jackie, and you wanted to make it, I don't mean you personally, but if you were a a detective and you wanted to make a name for yourself, this is beyond circumstantial. This is somewhere between circumstantial and proof that something is going on. If there's a step. Yeah, that's why I'm really shocked that none of the uh, newspaper editors are interested. Um, but they're so uninterested that most of them didn't even reply uh, to say, no, thank you, we don't want this. It's like there's some kind of, but the, like I said to you before, these are editors, that uh, a lot of them are editors that I speak to yeah, regularly. regularly yeah. And they're happy to reply to other emails. I send them about other things, but this, they just completely blank me. And even when I say, what did you think of the Madazalam story? Again, just silence. It's very, very strange. Now, the problem is I've been getting increasingly annoyed with uh, these people because they, they should be speaking out. They should be telling us what's going on. Why aren't they running these stories? Who's telling them they can't run them? Who, who, who's gagging them? Who's telling them they can't reply to my emails? Um, it's not just a coincidence. And the problem is that... Um, there are these these newspaper editors or whoever is controlling the editors they've got blood on their hands because what they're actually doing by not running this story is they're hiding the information from the public and the longer the information is hidden the more murders will be committed and the more families will be destroyed so even in the last say three months it's still going on it's not being stopped nobody knows about it i mean the word is getting out now but it's um they're actually, it's a crime. It's called an assist, assisting an offender. So the offender in this case is the government and the editors are assisting. The government. the government The government has spent, I don't know what the exact figure is, but since this began, 
late last winter, they've spent millions of pounds with the UK press to advertise everything from social distancing to book your job to don't kill granny. That advertising money, is is that playing a big part in their refusal to acknowledge your story, maybe more than them being co-conspirators? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I really have no idea what's going on. Yeah. Um, I've had no kind of uh, confirmation of anything, so I, I can only guess. And sometimes you get to the point you think, I'm being paranoid, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Maybe, maybe, it's all, maybe the heat's getting to me and, and I've gone a bit peculiar, but um, I hear the same from other uh, freelance journalists, but there aren't many freelance journalists who are wanting to write about this sort of thing um, because because they know they know that they're not going to get the story in the paper and they know they're not going to get paid and we all need to get paid so um and the flip just, side of that jackie is you have made your living as a journalist as a good as a very good journalist for for for, for years and the flip side of that is you have got to consider if i keep banging on the door with this story um you know eventually they won't take any of my stories well it's already happening um i i already think i've, I've been blacklisted by a lot of the editors, because some just completely ignore me now. Um, there's one editor I've been dealing with for about six years, and and they're usually very good at getting back to me. And they, I asked them, um, do you remember the the story of the, the the lady Lisa who was in the who escaped from the the quarantine hotel? Yes, yeah, yeah, of course. So I approached this editor, and and they said, yeah, that sounds good. And I said, I'll write it up for you, and I got it into them um, on time, and left it a couple of days, didn't hear anything, chased them up, um, no reply. It's now um, over two weeks later since I filed that that story. And that's a very readable story. By the way, Jackie put Lisa, Jackie was all over that story, typical, uh, (laughs) typical, a proper journalist and got in touch with me because this is not in any way now, I'm not talking about me, but this is the only bloody live radio show in the country, isn't it? And that's a shame. That's a that's a disgusting shame. It's the only daily live radio show in the country that will do anything. So Jackie had nowhere else to go, basically, with Lisa. But say, Richie, will you talk to her? And that's dreadful. And it's a great story, and it's a very readable story. And yet they're saying, nah, no thanks, or total silence. No, it's total silence. silence. Well, they're, inter- they're interested in the, idea, in the story. So I thought, I'll, you know, I said, I'll write it up for them. They said, thank you very much. And that's the last I heard. I, I You know, I gave it in. And then they haven't run it. I've checked. Um, I tried to speak to another editor there and she said, oh, she'd give the other one a, a nudge and uh, still nothing. And it's now over two weeks later. And, it's, Jesus. and is it that, you know, I don't know, maybe, are they just being rude? Are they, you know, so snowed? I mean, we're all snowed under with, with work. You know, it's a, it's a feeble excuse. Yeah, yeah. I'm busy, you know. You know, look what you do every day. Every day. You know, it's, you do 10 people's work. Well, you know what, Jackie, it depends. Thanks for saying that. It depends on how embedded in the scam. Now, first of all, I've got to say that I should play the jingle, by the way. I I won't play the jingle, but I should play the jingle. Jackie Devi does not necessarily agree with anything I say. Her being here doesn't mean that she automatically sees things as I see them. She might very well not, and she can speak for herself. I think it's a scam. I think whatever it was... It's uh, nothing that the public should be greatly worried about. I think it's been used to do the things that governments have longed to do and those who control governments have longed to do for many, many years to bring in a new paradigm. 
where control is basically total. That's how I see it. Um, Jackie might disagree with that. And if I'm right, the, the next question would be then, how embedded is the media in it? Or is it just a case of the media gets the advertising bucks from the government, so it just keeps, it just keeps quiet? I don't know the answer to that. I really don't. But um, I suppose if you're prepared to believe, and I know you believe it now, that they're killing people in hospitals deliberately, um, well, everything else is on the table, ultimately. It is for me, anyway. Again, I wouldn't put words in Jackie's mouth or in anybody's mouth. But I believe you. I believe the people who you brought on the programme. I believe it. I remember speaking years ago to David about the Liverpool Care Passaway when we were in London and, and doing TV stuff there. And even before that, when I was doing radio in Spain, and it astonished me back then that they would do stuff like that. But yet we know they're doing it. We know these people are telling the truth. And it must be so hard for you having this information. Of course, it's, it's harder for the families. Of course it is. But you've got it in your hand. And, and you, you'd be the first to admit, while I know for a fact that you have great empathy and sympathy for the families, I know this for a fact. You're also, you've also got that great gene that journalists have. The scoop. This is massive. Everybody yeah. should know about this. And it must yeah. be burning at you that they won't run this story. I spoke to one um, reporter not so long ago, and um, kind of off the record, and they said that um, if it was to go in the papers, it would be on the front page. It would be headlines. Um, For weeks. Yeah. But I think... From talking to the uh, reporters and editors who are who are a little bit further down the food chain, not not the not the top editors, um, I don't think they know what's what's happening. I don't think they know that they're being censored because some of them will enthusiastically um, respond to me about other stories, saying, "Oh yeah, that's great. We'll definitely run that." And then a couple of days later, that oh no, we can't. Nothing. Oh, we don't want to. So, for example. Uh, I spoke to one editor last in, in May 2020 about the DNR story that I had, and um, because I'd found out that my dad, who was in a care home at the time, had a DNR in place, and I knew nothing about them really. So I started looking into it and trying to get it removed, which was impossible. Um, and, um, and and I spoke to one editor at, of a broadsheet and said that I have this. I wanted to write it up because it was really interesting. And they commissioned it, and I wrote it up, and there was nothing wrong with it. And uh, he he then got back to me a few days later and said they they kind of weren't ready to run that. And and this is something that's happened a few times over the last year. They say mm, may, maybe we, we can't really run it now, but maybe in a few months. And I was like, sorry, what? Yeah, how many and people will die like, in the meantime? Yeah, people will be, be terrible things happening in the meantime. So. Um, I'm like, is there some kind of schedule? They're not allowed to run certain types of stories until a certain date, you know? And if so, that is sinister and peculiar. And who's made this schedule? But I think a lot of the the, the um, junior people, not necessarily junior, but just not the top dogs, um, I've said to them, would you be able to run that? And they're like, yeah, yeah, sure, of course we can. And then you know that, you know that they're going to come back a couple of days later when, when the big boss says... No, we're not going to run that, and they don't don't even give they don't give me a reason, and maybe they're not given a reason. Um, um, sometimes they might say, "Oh, we've done something similar recently," but no, these these things that I'm offering, they haven't done anything similar. So with the DNR story, um, 
I just thought, well, this is really a, an important story. It needs, needs to get out there. And so I just, just put it on, um, you know, alternative media. But the problem with doing that, as you well know, is that once it's, once it's you know, on certain um, alternative news sites, it then becomes a conspiracy theory yeah, or, you know. Yeah, of course it does. Yeah. And then, um, so I... I tried to avoid that to start with, and you know, so but that, that particular story, it went everywhere, and um, lots of people I hadn't seen for years were emailing me saying they'd seen the story, and um, how concerning it was. So um, yeah, I think that's, and, and the other stories that I've, I've offered to them last year about the uh, um, the misattribution of um, death to COVID on death certificates. That was one I offered last year. And just, uh, and then more recently, vaccine deaths and injuries, which they're only just starting to cover. Well, they're doing vaccine injury mainly, not, not so many deaths. And only certain, I think, Mail Online seem to run those. But... Um, and all, all, the, all the fudging of the figures and all, all the... All the contradictory sort of statistics um yeah I was, I was talking about that last year again some of it went out on alternative new um, news websites but but most of it and the, but the, the mainstream papers they, they wouldn't take it at all they wouldn't touch it let me that do uh it. let me do a quick summing up um, Jackie D. Weiser, guest, friend of mine, journalist, um, many years a journalist, as I said, byline in every newspaper in the country, writing for the papers and also providing stories for the papers for years. Um, was a big help to me in London uh, many years, well, not so many years ago, but a few years back when we were doing a TV a gig down there. Um, Jackie, last year, came across uh, Dr. Luke Evans, Conservative Party MP, the Health and Social Care Select Committee. He's on that committee. He had a conversation with the then Health Secretary, Matt Hancock, where he talked about giving good debts to people and asked Hancock, did he have the equipment, medication and the staff to administer such a thing as a good death? Uh, this is the biggest story in the world. Um, there is evidence, there is overwhelming evidence that for some time and maybe beyond some time, doctors are putting do not resuscitate notices on people against their will. People who are not dying and who could and should leave hospital and injecting them with midazolam and morphine to kill them, effectively. And uh, Jackie's been speaking to families about this for the best part of the last year. She's presented those families on this programme. She's gone on other programmes, um, written about it in, in, uh, for, for online uh, publications, and cannot get the press in this country to take it, uh, to run with it, and to, uh, to publish it, to do their own investigation of it. It's an absolute scandal. It really is. It doesn't get any worse than this. But, you know, I think, um, and we're not finishing, we've got plenty of time left before we finish, I think what will be happening is, because um, Gareth and his programme and, and the iconic um, show has a, big, has a very big reach, because this programme, the programme you're on now, not to brag, but it does, anybody can see it, has an enormous reach. You know, some people will have wised up to it, Jackie. So what you've done will mean that some people will be watching their mum, dad or grandmother or grandfather like a hawk now when they're in hospital. And that's a good thing, Jackie, you know. 
Yeah, or not, not let them into hospital at all, if possible. Or not let them go in, yeah, if they don't need yeah, to go my, in. My dad's got dementia. He, he said, I'm not going in hospital. I know I know what's going on, you know. Even the man with dementia knows what's going on. Should have mentioned but, that, by the way. Jackie liberated her dad from a care home. Um, <laughs> so so shocked was she at um, what was going on there and what might happen to him that she got him out of there um, at the speed of light. And he's been looked after now by uh, a friend who's um, acting as his care. And thank God everything is going well for him now. Thank yeah, God for that. Yeah, he's quite happy, but I could see what was coming, you know, back then. Um, I, him being locked in and not being allowed to see people apart from through a window. You know, yeah. and he was just getting really, really depressed, as anyone would in that situation, you know. Got so, you. Um, Sorry, Jackie, yeah, go, ahead. go ahead. Yeah, I had to step in and get him out. Um, though the, the vaccinations, I knew the vaccinations were coming. And I've spoken to so many people now whose elderly parents have been jabbed, even without consent, without permission. Um, somebody told me today um, about um, a report of um, a woman's father who had been actually physically held down, um, held, his legs were held down, his arms were held down while he was being um, injected. Christ and he was shouting, no, no, I don't want it, and, and writhing around, and they just held him down and jabbed him. That's a crime, I, Jackie, isn't it? That's a crime, right? It must well, be. It's assault, isn't it? Yeah. It's assault. Yeah, very clear. Um, so how they're being allowed to do that, the, the, the police seem to back up the doctors and nurses. I don't know what's going on there. Crazy. I don't, I don't know how it all works, but if you report a doctor or a nurse to the police... They don't seem to do anything about it. It's like they've never heard of Dr. Harold Shipman or... No, no. I think you probably only need to... If I'm right, and again, Jackie doesn't necessarily agree with this. If I'm right, um, you don't need to control too many people. Just the 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 editors of newspapers. Um, two or three people in control of the Metropolitan Police Forces. Th that's all you really need to lean on in order for them to be in such lockstep. Let me read you two very important emails. Uh, here's the first. My other half, Jackie, never gets involved. Never gets involved. <laughs> Listens with interest, but never, ever gets involved. But she's um, sent me a message. She said, um, say hello to Jackie, uh, Richie. She says, I think Jackie's editors might be giving her the silent treatment because they can't leave a recorded trace of the reason that they won't publish disinformation. A record of them officially saying no to Jackie, no thanks Jackie, will leave a trace of them choosing not to cover it. Their only option is to do nothing and stay silent. That's a good point. Yeah, very good point. I've had some, I had a couple of things put in right, nothing on this issue at all, but um, on uh, uh, vaccination, vaccination stories that, that I was doing in the past where uh, one editor did send me an email. He was kind of getting a bit fed up with me um, pestering him, I think. And he just said, look, I can't run any vaccine stories because it might jeopardise the rollout of the vaccine. Wow. And I thought, wow, he's actually put Maybe that in you're writing. Telling me. Yeah, he's put it in writing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and a few yeah. years ago, I'd written an article about, I think it was about the Flumist um, nasal spray vaccine for children. And that was for um, an online section of a newspaper. And she actually called me and said, I can't run any anti-flu jab stories because our paper is, has a big, uh, they've got a big advertising campaign in our paper yeah, and we're making yeah. money out of it. So we cannot say anything bad 
about this about any flu vaccines. So now it's funny you say that. My first gig was with WLR in Ireland. Now, anybody listening in Ireland will know WLR. Multiple times it's been, you know, voted radio station of the year. It's a great uh, radio station in Waterford. And I'm not saying it's great because I worked there, but it is great. Fantastic people there over the years. I produced the mid-morning talk show. And in the absence of the presenter, I would occasionally present it. But I would I used to prefer to get a stand-in presenter when he was away. I preferred producing it back then. Now, there were incredibly strict laws back then, Jackie. I, 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 you might know this, you might not know it. Our listeners probably won't know it. There were very strict rules back then that the manager of the radio station... Now, in radio stations, the manager or the manageress, they also lead the sales team. That's pretty standard in commercial radio, right? They were forbidden, absolutely forbidden, from interfering in what we talked about in the mid-morning talk show. Everything was fair game. They might be getting £50,000 a year from the bloke who um, sells bicycles for for rally in the the town centre. But if that bloke is ripping people off, we we, we expose the guy. Tough shit, tough shit, Paddy. Uh, the station loses £50,000 a year, but that's the way it is. And I, 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 there were actually, actually times when we went after people in the, the city and in the county, Jackie, that um, cost the station money. But such was the ethical standards that it was tough shit to the owner of the radio station. That's the way it was. But yeah. it, it ain't like that anymore, though. What's happened? What's changed? And why has yeah, it changed? I don't. I'd love to know. I, I, I've I've not been there to see that. Well, I can tell you what's happened in commercial radio. The stations were owned by local businessmen and women, born and bred in those towns, and they had principles. Now those stations are owned by conglomerates. They're owned by holding companies that, in fact, own fifteen, twenty, or thirty regional radio stations. That's what's happened. Plurality mm. basically is gone because you've got one corporation now. You, you you know in the UK it's Global and Bauer, isn't it, predominantly? You've got Global, you've got Bauer that own all the stations. That's what's yeah. happened. But no, it would have been unthinkable for our managing director to, to, to come in to our office and say, you can't run that story. He'd have been battered. I don't mean physically. He'd have been ran out of there. And he would have been reported to the Broadcasting Commission of Ireland. Yeah. Like I, I, like I said before, I think the features editors and and the, the people a bit lower down the hierarchy, they are just told no, we're not, you know, we're not running it. They they're not given a reason. No, they won't so, be given a reason. You're right. I don't, I don't think they were aware that there's any censorship at all, because they when when I've said to those people, would you be allowed to run this story? They're like, well, of course we'd be allowed. What are you talking about? I think so you've defined, you've just defined compartmentalisation. You've just, yeah. that's, that's what it is. Lisa has emailed. This is a bit sad. Richie, back in 2008, my mother went into hospital with kidney problems. The doctor told me she could have a double colostomy and live a few more months or they could, quote, make her comfortable. I feel sick because I chose the comfortable option. She went into a coma that day and died two days later. Mm. Haunts me every day, said Lisa. Yeah, I can. Well, as I said to you, um, I think we were speaking back back in June. Um, as I was looking into this, I I suddenly suddenly dawned on me that that that's what happened to my mum as well. So um, it was two thousand and nine when she died, and 
it hadn't occurred to me until I'd been talking to all these other people. And, and this is how it's working. If, if we get those people's stories out, other people will start to think, oh, my God, that happened to, to my dad or my mum, you know, or relative. And it really suddenly hit me one day that, that like my mum was on a syringe driver and I'd actually asked the nurse, What's it, what is in that? What's oh, happening? Yeah. What are you putting into it? Because I walked into the hospice where she was and she was sitting up and smiling and they were just putting the, the syringe driver in, into her arm. And they, then she just, within seconds, closed her eyes slowly and she never opened her eyes again. She was dead two days later. Um, I didn't know what was going on at one point because she was grunting and, and groaning and and like she was really desperately trying to talk. She sounded really angry. And I, I was thinking, it's like she was gagged. And, and I was thinking, what's she trying to say? I had no idea. But she was paralyzed. She couldn't move. She couldn't move her mouth to speak. She couldn't move her hands or her, her, her arms or legs. Um, she couldn't open her eyes. They were permanently closed. And I sat with her for three days, pretending I knew what she was trying to say, which was a bit sad, and having sort of conversations that way. And she was probably getting more and more annoyed because that's not what she, she was probably saying. Now, what I've heard from other people is, what the hell are you doing to me? What, what's going on? What's this stuff you're putting me? It's killing me. And I've spoken to a couple of families whose relatives were saved. They were rescued like when there were days or maybe even hours away from death when they realized what was going on. And they managed to communicate to either communicate to their um, relative or, or the relative realized that there was something terribly wrong and and they got them off the, the drip and took them home. And that's how they felt that these people, they say that they felt something was terribly wrong and, and they knew they were, they were dying and it was horrible. And it's a really horrible death. So all this nonsense about making people comfortable, that's, that's a complete fabrication. Because suffocation, right? You die very slowly by suffocation. Yeah. So Matt Hancock said that he was bringing in the medazolam, that big order from France, to treat um, the elderly um, in care homes or hospitals for COVID. It makes no sense, like we all know now, to give someone with a respiratory disease or respiratory problem some medication that depresses a muscle relaxant absolutely it's madness as an execution drug in america yeah they use it as part of the cocktail linda says i've worked in elderly care palliative nhs in private one thing i have to point out is that i found elderly people in the main to be incredibly mentally and physically resilient amazingly so as they keep going under the most incredible circumstances yes yeah, I, I have no doubt you're right, which, which again, you know, compounds the, the, the madness of um, taking healthy yeah. people and giving them these drugs. It's not easy uh, to die, it, it, you know, and, and the funny thing is, not funny at all, but the peculiar thing is um, most of the people I've spoken to, they've been told um, your relative is, is at death's door. They'll be dead within a couple of hours. You better come now. Now, how can you know that? Nobody knows that. Nobody knows when another person is going to die unless you're in the process of killing them. And then you will know how much of the drug you've given them and how long it's probably going to take according to their body weight. And they're usually spot on. The other, the other thing 
I can't remember if I spoke to you about it before, was um, practically all of the families I've spoken to have said that the staff were horrible, like the doctors and nurses, not all of them, but definitely a large proportion of them were sadistic, cruel, um, uncaring, uh, even joking in some situations um, in a really nasty way about about what was happening. And even after their relative had passed, um, they'd still be like cold, just cold. And I've heard words like like robotic, psychopathic, sociopathic, um, and it makes you wonder how these people have these jobs. End up in that in that business, end up in the business of caring for people. Are We've, they being chosen because, are they being put there, these psychopathic types, to deal this? Because, deal, you know, dole out this, this, um, this death medication, because a normal person, a normal nurse, a normal doctor, they'd just say, I'm not doing that. I'm yeah. not killing that elderly person. So who are who are these people? And and um, I know that there are certain types of people in those sort of hierarchies. You get the order givers, and then you get the order takers. So you've got the you've got the consultants and the doctors taking orders from the bureaucrats, from the, the men in suits. Um, some of them would say this protocol is wrong. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do it um, because I know it's gonna kill people. Um, but then. If they kick up a fuss, they're going to have to either resign, and I know doctors and, who have, or they're going to be sacked if, if they, you know, speak out too loudly. And then you've got the nurses. Or murdered, who, by the way. Sorry? Or murdered. Yeah, exactly. Um, and you've got the nurses who usually just take the orders from the doctors. So the doctors that stay give the orders to the nurses and they, and they just follow the orders. Um, and we know all about order followers and how, you know, that's not an excuse no, it when isn't. it comes to. So, no, it isn't. Um, not when it comes to killing somebody, it isn't. It is yeah, not. I've known people, I've known whistleblowers who, who've been sacked. I've known whistleblowers who blow the whistle and then just think, I'm not staying here. I just can't do this. And um, and whistleblowers who've just left maybe an NHS facility to just be, do, you know, private work instead or whatever. And, but the ones who are left are obviously the ones who are taking the, the orders from the bureaucrats and doing their bidding and murdering people. And it's a terrible thing to say. And when you when you mention it to other people, I, I can barely get my head around it now because oh, it just, I know they don't believe you. Yeah. Because they yeah. say, well, why would they do that? Yeah. Why would they do that? And how would they do that? Well, the the, the reason why is sad, sadly, um, probably money. If you think. If, if you can, um, like I said to you before, um, if you're an evil overlord and you want to reduce the population and save some money, who would be the first people you'd, you'd get rid, rid get of? Get rid of the elderly. The, the, elderly, pe the, the pensions. They're, yeah, they're living yeah. into their 90s. They're costing a lot of money. I don't know how much each pensioner gets a year on, on their pension. Probably, say it's £10,000 a year. Um Think how much they'd save with just one person if they could get rid of them at 70 instead of 90. That's a lot of money. That's 20, that's 20 times 10. Yeah, that's that's £200,000 per person. 
Um, that I was going to mention this as well because I was talking to Stuart Wilkie earlier today. Do you remember Stuart? Remember Stuart who came on, who's been following this as well, and gave us a lot of details about where this all began. Yeah, this idea, his, yeah. His, his parents were in separate care homes when they were murdered, and they were murdered within six days of each other. So he decided to investigate uh, what happened, and he's been doing it ever since. And he's such um, a knowledge on this now. Um, well, you know, you've spoken to him, you've had him on the show. Um, and he was talking to me earlier today about hospital targets. Um, with the Liverpool, Liverpool Care Pathway, which was apparently um, abolished in, in 2014. But it um, there, there, there are payments given for each person who dies on the pathway. And these payments are paid by the government to the hospitals. Um, there's, there's some um, people say that they're actually paid to the individual, can be, you know, the individual doctors get bonuses as well. I'm not sure about that. And they're called sequin payments, and uh, they still exist. And it, it, back, back then, when, when the Liverpool Care Pathway was in action, it, it was £1,200 per person that the hospital was getting. And they had to reach targets that a certain number of people had to die per year. So can you imagine the, la the last day of your hospital targets and there's, you're three under the target, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. and you're thinking, well, we better get rid of three people, you know. Said to you I said to you last time you were on, it's like, it's like a Robin Cook novel. It's yeah. like coma. I mean, it is. It's, it's mad. Yeah. I remember watching that film with Genevieve Bujold and and Michael Douglas when I was younger, a spooky film about what they would do to people. And it's, 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 it's happening. I mean, I, I know it's happening. I mean, that's the these, thing. It's, these figures were readily available yeah. while the Liverpool Care Pathway was being used. And then, from 2014, it, it went very quiet on the figures front, and it was really hard to find any information about it. And I think that, that was to make it look like Liverpool Care Pathway had ended. When in actual fact, as we know now, it never ended. It's continued it, under a different name. It didn't, it didn't have a name. It didn't even have a name, yeah, yeah. But last year, they brought a COVID sort of pathway back in and COVID death pathway, I'd like to call it. Um, and they called it the gold standard framework, I think. And if you look on certain care home websites, you might see gold standard accredited or gold standard framework. 80% um, of care homes are gold standard accredited. And if you saw that, you think, oh, they've won a, they've won a medal, you know, because they're so fantastic. They've got the gold medal. But it's not that at all. It's, it, it's the, the name of this death pathway that they're implementing. And people don't realise that. No, it's, it's, it's like you said, they, they didn't give it a new name at all. It just continued because the practice had been established and then COVID came along. We've got 60 seconds left, Jackie. I'll give you the the final word obviously you'll be coming back to keep us updated as as your investigation progresses and i suppose as your attempt continues to get this into um the press into the national media and uh sure anything we can do and not just this program but other programs it's a massive yeah, story you know i'll definitely keep you posted um like i said i've got a flicker of interest from one um national newspaper um and i should hear more about that next week i've got a feeling if they do run it it won't be this weekend it's a sunday paper 
It won't be this weekend because of Freedom Day on Monday. So I think they're all focusing on that at the moment. Yeah. It'll be the weekend after. Um, but I've been in this situation before where, where they're interested for a, a number of weeks and then the interest just wanes. So, But I, I'm fingers crossed that they fingers will actually publish yeah. something. Yeah, so I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll let you know what happens on that. Brilliant. Follow Jackie on Twitter, Jackie Devoy, D-E-E-V-O-Y. There's only one Jackie. Follow her on Twitter. Keep up to date with this story. Thanks, Jackie. It's grim stuff, but thanks for doing it. And um, okay. sure, I'm in touch with you every other day. I'll speak to you real soon. Okay. Thanks, Richie. Bye, Bye for now. now. Brilliant. Thanks for that brilliant work. Jackie Devoy there, uh, journalist, real journalist. Not many of them left. Uh, on uh, Thursday's Richie Allen radio show. That's it for me then. I'll uh, see you now. Or I'll speak to you, not see, I'll speak to you next time on Sunday morning at 10 o'clock for the Sunday Morning Melodies programme, which is a different thing to this, of course. It's a music programme. Very relaxed, very light. If it's your thing, 10 o'clock, richieallen.co.uk and the TuneIn app. Thanks again to Jackie Devoy. Until Sunday, look after yourselves and one another and have a fantastic weekend. (laughs) 